DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's Word and apply His message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. Welcome back to our Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study and our lecture series on the Synoptic Gospels. Today, we will be studying the parables of Jesus Christ. What is a parable? It's an earthly story with a spiritual lesson. Let's join our lecture series and listen to a lesson on the parables of Jesus. Good evening, everybody. Hope you had a great fellowship time. Tonight, we are discussing the parables of Jesus. The stories that Jesus told, the stories that he used to teach, many, many parables in the Bible. Jesus wants to intervene in our everyday lives. He used everyday examples. He wants to show us through everyday things who we are and what we must do to be his follower. So there are many, 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 many parables. Scholars count them different ways because some are allegories, some are this, some are that. But there's a lot of them. Pope Benedict says there is no doubt that the parables constitute the heart of Jesus' teaching. And it is a mistake to try to pin down the genre of the parable to a single literary type. Because he'll quote Joachim Jeremias, who's a scholar, who says the Hebrew word for parable, mashal, means parable, similitude, allegory, fable, proverb, ap 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 ah, apocalyptic <laughs> revelation, riddle, symbol, pseudonym. You get the idea. There's a lot of genres. So the parable is really a mystery of a masterpiece of the way Christ teaches. And the disciples came up to him and they said, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And the Pope says, is it the point of the Lord's parables to make his message inaccessible and to reserve it for only a small circle of elect souls whom he interprets them for himself? Is that what he's doing? No. Is it that the parables are intended not to open doors but to lock them? No. Does Jesus want only a few elite to know the meaning or everyone? Is he being exclusive? No, that's not his style. We don't see that anywhere else in scripture. He comes to lepers and prostitutes, tax collectors, bleeding women, widows, those who are already dead to raise them, the blind, the lame, the poor, the brokenhearted, the heavy laden, the Pharisee, everybody. So he doesn't, he's not trying to keep it from us, but why then? Why? He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Hmm. Parables. No other teacher in the Greco-Roman world other than Jesus Christ used parables to this extent. And the parables can simultaneously do two things. They can conceal and reveal at the same time. 
Why might Jesus want to both reveal and conceal information? Why? Why is it given to them, the apostles, but not everyone else at that time? Because not yet. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Because if you remember Ignatius of Antioch and his letter to the Ephesians, he's a friend of Polycarp and he sat under John the Apostle's teaching. Ignatius of Antioch stresses three mysteries in God's plan that had to be kept hidden from the prince of the world, namely the devil. To review, those were the virginity of Mary, the virgin birth, and the death of Jesus on the cross. Those have to stay hidden. Now, Ignatius doesn't explain how these mysteries had to remain hidden from the devil, but he just says they had to remain hidden. The one we'll look at tonight is his death on the cross has to remain hidden. Why? It's unlikely that Jesus Christ would win our salvation this way. This is a huge paradox to the world. And to make a gateway back to the Father, it must not be thwarted by Satan. It is hidden until it's a finished work on the cross. So he says stuff like, don't tell anybody. I'm going to heal you, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I did that. And don't tell anyone what you have seen until, this is after the transfiguration. Don't tell anybody. And you don't know now what I'm doing when I wash your feet, but, but later you're going to understand. Later you're going to understand. And the Jews replied that it has taken 46 years to build this temple. He said, oh, don't, but they, they didn't worry about it now. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they started to understand. Now he tells them in his farewell discourse, I've told you this in figures of speech. That means parables. The hour's coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, no longer speak to you in parables, but I will tell you clearly about the Father. That time's coming. After his death on the cross, after he frees the imprisoned spirits, after he opens the gateway back to the Father in heaven, and after he's raised from the dead, then you can tell everyone, then you can tell the whole entire world. Then it's not a secret anymore because he's conquered, he's defeated Satan. Colossians 2 says, Christ, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. He smashes him on the cross. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan's crushed. He's defeated. I love how St. John Chrysostom says this. He was the preacher with the golden tongue. Listen to how he says it. This is from one of his sermons. Do you see how the devil is defeated by the very weapon of his prior victory? The devil had vanquished Adam by means of a tree. Christ vanquished the devil by means of the tree of the cross. The tree sent Adam to hell. The tree of the cross brought Adam back from there. The tree revealed Adam in his weakness, laying prostrate, naked, and low. The tree of the cross manifested to all the world the victorious Christ, naked and nailed on high. Adam's death sentenced, his death sentence was passed on to all who came after him. 
Christ gave life to all his children through that tree. Now, why is he keeping it hidden then? It's not time yet. It's not time yet. He'll conceal and reveal with the parable. The kingdom of heaven has been given to you, apostles, but not to everyone yet. Not yet. Not yet. But after the resurrection, they'll say, whoa, wasn't our heart burning within us when he told us all those connections on the way to Emmaus? And when he saw Mary Magdalene, go, go and tell all my brothers. Tell them that I'm your father and their father, that I'm my God and your God, that we're brothers, we're sisters. I'm risen. It's over. He's conquered. We've won. Go tell everyone. Go baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I commanded. And... I won't leave you orphan. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit so you can take it to all the ends of the earth. So it won't be a secret anymore after the resurrection. But he goes on to say, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. The Pope says we've kind of become this way as a society, a secular society that likes rationalization. We have developed a concept of reality that excludes reality's translucence to God. The only thing that counts as real is what can be experimentally proven. God cannot be constrained into experimentation, the Pope says. Israel tried it in Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the desert where your fathers tested me and tried me, though they had seen what I did. They are trying to constrain God to experimentation. Give us another sign so we can see can't do that. He doesn't work that way. He can't be constrained to experiment. He says to the apostles, blessed are you, your eyes, because they see. Blessed are your ears, because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but they did not see it. They long to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. So in saying these words of Isaiah 6, Jesus places himself in the line of the prophets. His destiny is a prophet's destiny. What happens to prophets? Their message goes too much against the general opinion and the comfortable habits of life. And they fail. That means they die. It's only through failure that their word becomes efficacious. After they're dead, people start thinking, oh, wonder if we should have done that. This failure of their prophets is an obscure question, a question mark hanging over the whole history of Israel. And in certain way, it constantly reoccurs in the history of Israel and in the history of all humanity. Like in the stoning of Stephen, he gives this beautiful, eloquent speech. And he says, you stiffney people with uncircumcised hearts, hardened hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You will always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. 
And they gnashed their teeth and they were furious with Stephen. And they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And they murdered him to death. That's what they do to prophets. They don't want to hear it. Above all, it is also again and again the destiny of Jesus Christ, his failure. He's going to end up on the cross. It seems like a failure. He's dead. It's over. But that very cross is the source of great fruitfulness. So let's see what he has to say in the parable of the sower. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. But he's going to veil things. He's going to conceal and reveal at the same time. All the synoptics have this one, and they all quote Isaiah 6. Now, right before this first parable, last week, we had Jesus on the Mount, the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes. Right before Isaiah 6 is Isaiah 5, and it is Isaiah quoting woes and judgment, kind of his own Sermon on the Mount. And then in Isaiah 6, there were no chapter numbers back in the day. Isaiah is in the throne room of heaven. He's taken to the throne room of heaven, and he has a heavenly vision. And the Lord God is seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of the robe fills the temple. And above him are seraphs with six wings and two wings that cover their faces. And, and it's just this magnificent vision. He's taken into the beatific throne room of God, and they're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there was smoke, and, and Isaiah says, Woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and he's going to see the Lord, he's going to die. But an angel takes a tongue and touches his mouth with a hot coal. And he says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And the voice of the Lord said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. So he's willing to leave the beatific, the throne room of God, God Almighty, to go be a servant for the Lord. Here I am, send me. Do you know any other prophet that was willing to do that? To leave the throne room of heaven, to be sitting at the right hand of the Father and leave that and say, here I am, Father, send me. Jesus Christ is the prophet of prophets. Here is another prophet who's willing to be sent, like Isaiah, but he will be the prophet of prophets, Jesus Christ. And he will open the scroll to Isaiah 61, the first sermon he gives in his hometown of Nazareth, and he will read Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me. He has anointed me. He's the anointed one. And it rang true, and, and everyone knew it. And he said, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. They were astonished, the authority he spoke with. They couldn't believe it. But then this prophet goes on to say, but remember in Elijah's day? When no one in his hometown, he could have gone to anyone, but who did he go to? This was, our sermon, this was our gospel this Sunday. He goes to the widow of Zarephath of Sidon. Sidon! We hate Sidon. And, and then Jesus says, and what about Naaman? It, there were so many people in Israel that had leprosy that Elisha could have cured, but he cured Naaman, the Syrian. Syria! Well, we hate Syria. They're getting furious. This is his very first sermon. He's ticking them off right off the bat. And all the people in the town, by the end of that chapter, they are furious with him. And they take him to the edge of the town. They want to push him off a cliff. They want to kill him already on his very first sermon. He's a prophet. He's a prophet. And what do they do to prophets? We know. Now, Jesus is going to quote Isaiah a lot, a lot. 
St. Gregory of Nyssa will say that um, Isaiah the prophet knew more perfectly than any of the other prophets the mystery of the religion of the gospel. And St. Jerome says that Isaiah was more of an evangelist than a prophet because he described all the mysteries of the Church of Christ so vividly that you would assume he was not prophesying the future, but actually composing a history of past events. And if you read like the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, you'll just be like stunned. Like how, how was he there? He wrote this hundreds of years ago, but we all know what happens to prophets. The prophets aren't accepted and they're often put to death by their own people in their own towns. They are killed because people don't want to hear their message. Ears don't want to hear what they have to say. Eyes don't want to see them. Hearts are calloused and hardened. Hebrews 11 has a whole section about the prophets. You know what they did to the prophets on and on and on again. They were stoned, they were dear, they were flogged, they were chained, they were put in prison. They were sawed in two. That's how Isaiah died. According to Jewish records, Isaiah was cut in half with a wood saw at the order of King Manasseh. They were sawed in two. You think they would go the other way, but they go that way. <laughs> Vertical. And he said, go tell this to the people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. At the end of chapter 6 of Isaiah, he says, But as the terebinth and oak leave the stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in this land. Hmm. The holy seed will be the stump in this land. A few chapters up the road, he'll say that a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So you think, who is this seed that's coming? out of this stump, and the terebinth is Elah in Hebrew, and there's a valley of terebinth trees, and that's where David fought Goliath. There's not that many terebinth trees in the Holy Land. There's a whole valley of them where David slays the giant Goliath, crushes his head. Maybe this is the seed. Maybe this is the seed we've been waiting for, the one that will crush the head of Satan as predicted in Proto-Evangelium. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Ooh, is this the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse? From his root, a branch that would bear fruit? Is this the holy seed we've been waiting for? In the Sistine Chapel, David is in one corner, and the opposite corner next to him is Judith. They're both head crushers. Judith slays the head of Holfernes and saves Israel. David is a head crusher. Could he be the one? Is he the one predicted? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He will crush your head. Is he the seed from the stump of Jesse? Jesse's his father. He's the son of Jesse. And he's a really good shepherd. And he's going to go on to be the greatest king Israel had ever known. And when they bring the ark to Israel, he's going to put on a linen ephod and dance before the ark of the Lord. A linen ephod is priestly garb. Hmm. So David is a king and a pseudo-priest. He has two offices. There's another guy with two offices, Melchizedek, we met in Genesis chapter 14. He's the king of Salem, which turns out to be Jerusalem, and he's also the priest of God Most High, 
and he will offer Abraham a blessing. The greater blesses the lesser. Hmm, he has two offices. He's a king and a priest, Melchizedek. Hmm. There's only one that I know of that has three offices. And three is the divine number, and it's Jesus Christ. He has three offices. And in Catechism 436, it says that it is necessary that the Messiah be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord at once as king and priest and also as prophet. We know he's king. He says the kingdom's at hand. He's King Jesus. And the first thing the angel told, Gabriel told Mary, is that the Lord God's going to give him a throne of his father David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. That's kingdom. He's a king. Today we'll see he's a prophet. He's a prophet. He's a messenger sent from God the Father. His teaching will be prophetic. He will say things they don't want to hear. They want to throw him off a cliff after his first sermon. And he's going to be the high priest, not just a priest, but the high priest that institutes the eternal thank offering called the Eucharist. And he's not just going to be the priest that offers it, but he's going to be the sacrifice, a perfect, final, atoning, once-for-all sacrifice. And the priest that mediates, intercedes to the Father and offers the sacrifice of atonement for the people on our behalf, for all, for all time, forever. So Jesus has three offices. He's prophet, priest, and king. This is important because that's what Messiah had to be. Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. And the whole people of God participate in these three offices. We, by virtue of our baptism, we also are called to be a priest, prophet, and king. The Holy Seed will be the stump in the land, a shoot that comes from Jesse. Now we're getting close to Advent, and we'll see Jesse trees. Jesse trees come out at Advent time. And this is a tree of Jesse and all the prophets. And there's Mary and Jesus right in the center. Jesse is David's father. He's at the very bottom, and all this springs from his loins. But see the tiny little helpless baby in the center of the tree, the little tiny, tiny baby. That's a mustard seed. That's a tiny little helpless baby that can't change his own diapers or burp himself or feed himself. And that tiny little seed, Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in a garden, like a new creation garden of Eden, like a new creation. And it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Wild mustard seeds in the Holy Land are the tiniest little speck, pinhead, and it grows to be a bushy, bushy, bushy tree. Jesus is a tiny baby, and he grows to be a huge tree of life, continually, perpetually. The leaves are for the healing of the nations, the Eucharist, and the tree of life with the Trinity and the 12 apostles, the restored 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus uses that tiny little mustard seed model as the start to the kingdom of God. In that tiny little seed is all the potential for everything. The mustard seed grows from small to large. It's realized over time, but everything's contained in that little tiny seed. The infant, helpless, baby Jesus, to the adult, male, selfless Jesus. The Catholic faith grows from a very small holy family of three that models the Trinity to a large holy family of 1.196 billion in 2010. 
the little speck of the mustard seed grows to two billion worldwide. Our own faith starts little, like a seed. But we learn to trust the Lord. We learn to surrender. We learn to offer it all to him. And as we do that, our faith grows. I like that song, I will climb this mountain with my hands wide open as we continue to just give and offer and surrender everything to him. Our faith grows. Does Jesus ever call himself a seed? Because the seed has everything. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This was the climax of John's gospel, the whole climactic part in John 12. This is the hour of glory. This is it. This is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is that seed. He dies to produce many seeds life, endless seeds to feed us, the life of the world, the eternal food, the Eucharist made of wheat. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And he will. The seed that will die in order to produce many, 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 many endless eternal seeds. And we eat the bread and we become partakers once again of his divine nature. He dies that we too might become little seeds by the power of the Holy Spirit, little Christ, other Christ, partakers of his divine nature once again. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. You want to be glorified? He said we could be glorified. How did he become glorified? Broken. He's broken and shared with others. So we are children and then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we indeed share with his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. So Jesus is going to teach with parables. A parable is an earthly story with a spiritual lesson, and it can conceal and reveal both at the same time. Oh yes, Jesus was a seed. In fact, he is first called a seed way back in Genesis 3.15. It is called the Proto-Evangelium because it is God's very first promise of salvation, his very first good news of a Savior. Right after the fall, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now this predicted seed is the first gospel, the first good news. An offspring, a seed was coming to crush the ultimate enemy, Satan. God promised it. And to save mankind by opening up a way back to the father that Adam and Eve were so mercifully banished from. For God did not want them to eat from the tree of eternal life in the state of mortal sin, because if they did, they would forever eternally be separated from him. So God had a plan, and it involved a seed, an offspring, a seed that he would implant in the womb of a young, sinless virgin. And that seed would grow in wisdom and stay and eventually the seed would have to die in order to produce new life. That new life would be eternal life for all of us who believe. Listen to this at John 12. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Friends, that grain seed named Jesus did not want to remain a single grain. He wanted to fall into the earth and die so that he wouldn't remain just a single seed. He died so that he might produce even more seeds, more little Christs, because we too, when we die to ourselves, we plant more seeds of the life of Christ and the love of Christ. Until we meet again, friends, let's plant some seeds. Let's pray that we might die more to ourselves so that we might produce even more seeds in the kingdom of Christ. And always keep seeking truth. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.